Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Whoa, whoa! It's the ghost of future Sophie's past here, wishing you a merry bone miss. This is our bone miss episode, and when I knew that we were going to do this episode, I sent out the call to all of our boneheads, friends of the show, and previous guests to wish you a little bit of a merry bone miss. So enjoy some of those messages throughout the show, and without any further ado, let's get right into it. This is Camilla wishing you a merry bone miss and bone voyage. Happy holidays. Merry Bone Miss from Matt and Kelsey. Hi, this is Jeff from Maple Daddies wishing you all a merry bony Christmas. What time is it? Let me check my watch. Oh, it's Bone O'Clock. In olden days, a glimpse of femur was only for morbid dreamers, but you're not alone. Bring anything wrong to goofy gals with interest go on a skeleton inquest in your headphones anything bones hello and welcome to anything bones i am sophie mistletoe schwartz and i'm caitlin christmas tree heart and we're (laughs) ready to talk to you about some creepy christmas shit Yes, it is Bone Miss once again, and we have come to you with some tales of holiday horror. <laughs> it's true. And really, for those of you who are listening on the day we release this episode, truly, Merry Christmas 2021, because yeah. this will come out on Saturday, December 25th. And I hope you're having a good day, whether it's Christmas or not for you, yeah. personally. I hope you feel the spirit. Yeah, yeah. Feel any kind of spirit. I don't know. The spirit of the holiday. You don't need to feel any kind of religious spirit. Yeah, yeah. Even though I am not a Christian and I am not uh, a follower of the small baby Jesus, I do enjoy Christmas and I enjoy how happy people are, you know, on the actual day and seeing all the decorations. It brightens my day, you know? Yeah, it's a merry time of year. I love, I love it. I love peppermint. So this is my time also. Oh, yeah, you're you are all peppermint everything. Exactly. In the spirit of holiday cheer, Caitlin, I hear you have a a joyous story for us. Yeah, I picked something totally happy and comforting and special. (laughs) Uh, No, (laughs) no, actually, I'm here to fuck up your life. (laughs) Yeah, what podcast did you think this was? (laughs) No, I'm not here to fuck up your life. I'm going to tell you a story that took place in 1945 in good old West Virginia. Ah, I think a lot of people will have heard this story or heard of this story. But again, I say this every time I cover something popular. I hope you learn something that or that you had maybe missed before. I'm covering the disappearance of the Sodder children. Ooh, a Christmas classic. It's a Christmas classic. This takes place on Christmas Eve and Christmas 1945. So it's it's a brutal Christmas story. I will say when we were gathering topics for this episode, there came a point when we were both Googling Christmas murder. And there were a lot more than I was comfortable with. (laughs) Definitely. 
So for my story, I read a few articles and I listened to a lot of podcasts because a lot of popular shows have covered this topic. So I read an article from the Smithsonian Magazine, from FilmDaily.com, from NPR, and then I listened to my fave, Morbid, episode 10, (laughs) and then Stuff You Missed in History Class. They don't have uh, episode numbers, so it was released on December 16th, 2015, their episode on the Sodder Children. And I also listened to Stuff You Should Know, which released an episode about the Sodder Children on May 18th, 2016. And then I listened to an episode of Case File number 192. I listened to a lot of this research, by the way, just like as a quick aside, I listened to it while getting my nails done, (laughs) (laughs) toes and hands. So that's why I listened to a lot of my research because I was multitasking. (laughs) Yeah, getting your beautiful red dip powder nails done. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. They're gorgeous. Thank you. Moving on. I love dip powder nails. Uh, If you're (laughs) in the market for a manicure, get it. My nails are so strong. Moving on. Never say I love dip without following powder nails. <laughs> but I love dip as well. Like I'd eat dip all the time if you let me. Oh, I was talking about the kind of tobacco you put in your fucking lip oh, is yeah. also called dip. <laughs> oh, get rid of that. No, thank you. <laughs> I really got to start this story. So the Sodder family uh, begins with George and Jenny. These lovely people are both Italian immigrants, and they immigrated to the US when they were children. They met like while she was working at her dad's store. And he would just stop by on it like on his in the middle of his work and just like check in on her and say hey. And so they got married in 1923. I know it's just like, Oh, it's so pure. Just like I just stopped by. Yeah, I'm just here to say hey. What's in your store? No. Hey, girl, what's in your store? <laughs> Where are the dry goods at? No, nobody can say that to me because I work at a doctor's office. <laughs> yeah, what was you? <laughs> I know, so sad. Okay, so over the next 20 years, they have 10 children together. Whoa. But this is like a, a very beautiful American dream story because George works a lot of odd jobs over the years and then eventually he starts his own trucking company and they're known around town as, you know, respectable, successful, and they live in this two-story little house a couple miles away from Fayetteville, West Virginia. So we're up to Christmas Eve 1945, which coincidentally, is a few weeks after World War II, peace was declared. A happy Christmas. Yeah, it should have been a wonderful Christmas. Everybody, like they even their oldest son was on in the military. So they would have been really excited that the war was over. Yeah, definitely. So George and Jenny are at home with nine of their 10 children, like I said, the oldest one, whose name is either unknown according to some sources, or his name is Joe. I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> okay. But he was he was in the army and we don't know his name? 
I get, yeah, he's not really involved in the story. Like he, he's never mentioned later on. It's, it's really weird. Hmm. He is not involved in the story, but he is the 10th or the first solder child, I guess. So parents and the nine children are home on Christmas Eve, obviously. The kids are up later than usual because they're playing with their toys and, you know, it's Christmas Eve. What parent wouldn't be like, yeah, you can stay up a little late to play with your toys on Christmas Eve. Mom, Jenny was like, hey, you guys just make sure you put the chickens away, feed the cows and like lock the door, turn off all the lights. At some point, and so she goes to bed and at some point she's woken up a few different times. It's kind of unclear what the order of things are. But anyway, she hears something being thrown on the roof and like rolling down, she thinks, which is weird. Okay, yeah. It's not Santa? (laughs) No, no, it is not. She, I guess, checks it out, goes back to bed. There's nothing going on. She gets a phone call. It's like the middle of the night, gets a phone call, and there's a weird woman on the other end of the phone who asks for some name that Jenny doesn't recognize. And then she hears like laughing and glasses clinking in the background. And the lady on the phone just like laughs and hangs up. And it's really weird. Creepy. So this is probably just a weird fucking coincidence, this phone call. But one theory I heard, which I thought was just interesting, was that maybe that phone call was to make sure the family was home. Oh, you know, that's just that was just a, a little tidbit I thought was interesting. So at some point when these things happen in the middle of the night, Jenny realizes that the lights are still on. She's like, what the fuck? One of her kids is asleep on the couch and she just assumes that the kids have gone to bed and they forgot to turn out the lights. So she turns off the lights and goes back to bed. She wakes up next time. And this is when it's really bad because she smells smoke. That's what wakes her up. Fuck. The room right next to her bedroom is on fire so she's like screaming for her husband she and the her husband george like scream upstairs where some you know where the kids are sleeping and george is super dad in this situation he really tries really hard to keep everybody in his family safe he is trying to break a window to get back into the house at some point and like slashes his arm so just like keep in mind he's got a big old cut the whole time this is going on and he is he got out of the house and then went back in the house yes so he's out his wife is out their youngest child who is two or three years old depending on what source you look at her name is sylvia and her crib was in the bedroom so obviously they just like scooped her up and took her outside yeah she's outside with the parents 17-year-old daughter Marion and two of his their sons, 23-year-old John and 16-year-old George Jr. So four kids are outside, two parents are outside. There are five children missing. Oh my god. Yeah. What the a kids, nightmare. Yeah. Maurice, Martha, Lewis, Jenny, and Betty are the kids that are missing. And George just assumes because they're not outside, they must still be inside the house. So he's freaking out. The only place he can think that they'd be would be in their bedrooms, like maybe trying to hide. And there's no fucking way to get to them because the staircase is on fire. And like, yeah, like he, he doesn't know what to do. So he goes outside and he's like, oh, there's a ladder I keep in this specific spot. I'll use the ladder and I'll get into the bedrooms that way. 
the one time he needs the fucking ladder the most, and it's not there. Ooh, that's interesting. And they find it eventually, like, not that far away from the house, like, kind of hidden or, like, in a ditch. It's really weird. That that reeks of suspicion to me. I'm suspicious. Yes. George is like, okay, the ladder's gone, so I'll back my truck up to the house and I'll climb on top of that to get inside. He has two trucks and neither of them will start. Jesus, what the actual fuck? Yeah, so this is also very suspicious. It's also possible that in his like haste to get the car started, he could have flooded the engine. Nobody knows. I mean, cars did not start as easily then as, you know, your car starts today. But it is very odd that a guy who owns a trucking company whose cars work perfectly fine, suddenly two of them don't work when he needs them the most. And I mean, you're the dad. You can't give up. There's no, there's no throwing up your hands and saying there's nothing I can do. Like no, he even tries to scoop rainwater from a barrel, and it's frozen solid because it's winter. Because God hates him, <laughs> apparently. So the daughter, the eldest daughter, Marion, goes to a neighbor's house to call the fire department, and no operators respond. Another neighbor calls. I don't know if it's the same department or what, but probably the same fire department because there was no 911 back then. And nobody responds. It's Christmas Eve. It's the middle of the night. But also, shouldn't somebody be manning the phones at the fire department? Yeah, I'm pretty sure Christmas, from the scant research we did, I'm pretty sure Christmas can be a dangerous time. Yeah. So somebody has to physically drive into town to track down the fire chief. His name is F.J. Morris, and he is not a cool dude, according to this story. Well, yeah. So this initiates their version of like a fire alarm, you know, where the alarm goes off and all everybody runs to get to the truck. In this version, they have to call each other one by one in a phone tree to oh get a crew. My God. Are they volunteer firemen? Is it? Do they not have like people? Maybe on not standby. Un- it's unclear. Yeah. There were some sources that also said that the this guy, Morris, like said he couldn't drive the fire truck, so he had to wait for somebody else to do it. And it's like, okay, maybe you need more than one person to operate that fire truck. That's a possibility that I would believe. But also, like, were you drunk because it's Christmas Eve? Like, were you, like why didn't this guy go? Isn't he the fire chief? He's the fire chief, yeah. So And he only- doesn't know how to drive the fire truck. Or he, they need multiple people or he to needs operate it. Who knows? Fine, yeah. For sure. But I don't so, like his attitude. <laughs> well, no. And all these delays and, like, somehow, even still, you would think it would only be delayed by, like, a few hours because the fucking solder house is only two and a half miles away from the fire station. The crew doesn't get there until 8 a.m., which if you're counting, that's about six and a half, seven hours after the fire started. So guess what? The fire's burned out. The house is gone. There's nothing left. Yeah, I was going to say, by the time you fucking got there, the fire has fought itself. Yeah, so you're too, you're way too late. It, it just, yeah, it's very frustrating. Don't know if I, if it's just like, because it's kind of, for a long time ago like you just say like fuck it it was a long time ago i guess people didn't have their shit together but it's also like is there any common sense here like shouldn't the fire station be manned at at all times even in 1945 
I guess this this was a bad fire station. I mean, yeah. I don't want to cast dispersions, but who know who knows? Anyway, I got to move along in a clip. This is a long story. <laughs> There's a lot to it. So the parents obviously are like, there's no way the kids could have survived this. The When the fire chief fucking shows up, when the firefighters show up, they do a quick search of the grounds and find no remains. But Morris is like, no, you know, I bet the fire was so hot that it burned up all the bodies completely. Guess what? Uh, That's incorrect. I was going to say, it's a fire to cremate a body's got to be really, really, really hot. And then an inspector attributes the fire to, like, bad wiring. Um, And everybody's like, okay, we're done. And George (laughs) does something kind of suspicious, or either it's suspicious or he got permission to do it, depending on what source you read. He Mm -hmm. actually buys a bunch of dirt and covers the burnt house. It, like, levels it so they can make a garden. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, uh... It's a weird thing to do, but okay. At this point, the coroner's office, based on a jury's recommendation, issues five death certificates for the children and says their cause of death was fire or suffocation. But it didn't take long for the Sodder parents to be like, hold on, what the fuck? Yeah. They go back to the site a lot. They plant flowers there. And they also start you know, coming, remembering weird things that have been happening leading up to the night of the fire. There are a few things that really stand out in their memory. They remember that there was this stranger a few months earlier who wanted to like do some work for George. And George was like, no, I don't have any work for you. And this guy went to the back of the house for some reason and pointed to these fuse boxes and said, quote, this is going to cause a fire someday. Just, and, and like, left. Very specific phrasing. But George was a pretty responsible person, and he had had the wiring checked by the power company not that long ago, and was like, no, everything's fine, weirdo, goodbye. Yeah. Around the same time, some other guy just meanders onto the property, and he's trying to sell life insurance. And when George is like, no, I don't need any... He allegedly says something like, quote, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to pay for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. What? What does Mussolini have to do with (laughs) any of this? I'll tell you very briefly. George was Italian and he did, like, he was very outspoken about not liking Mussolini and it would sometimes Which is a good opinion. Yeah, like, we're we're all for it. Sorry, I had so... (laughs) I had bubbles in myself. (laughs) So George doesn't like Mussolini, which is a good opinion to have. And he, I guess, gets in arguments about it sometimes. And whatever, I guess he's like, okay, uh, I guess I have some controversial opinions, but he doesn't take this guy's threat seriously because it's so fucking weird. Because who would? No. Like, no. The way he's like, you'll you'll regret what you said about my personal friend, Mr. Mussolini. Yeah, and I'm also trying to sell you something, and I'm mad at you for not buying it. It's just, it's a weird story. Why won't you buy the life insurance I want you to buy so that I can burn your house down for fraud? I know. 
So the kids also recall before Christmas, there was a man watching them who was like parked nearby, uh, watching them as they came home from school. So we didn't, you know, we don't like that. Absolutely not. At this point, Jenny decides to do some experiments because she's like, I don't believe the official story. She's like, there's no way that five bodies in a fire that burns for less than an hour just don't exist anymore after that fire. So she actually does experiments. She like after they have dinner, she'll just burn animal bones at different Hell heats. Yeah, bitch. yeah, she's just like doing experiments. And every time she comes up with the same answer, like you're always going to have some chunk of bone remaining, you're never going to just get rid of it completely. She even goes to a crematorium and they tell her that bodies burn at like if they're burned at 2000 degrees for about two hours, then they will like disintegrate. But there's no way that their house fire got that warm. And it wasn't that long even. I'm just sorry, I'm just grinning because I love when people point out that it takes a lot of heat to cremate someone. You can't just up and set a fire and think that you're going to get rid of a body entirely. No, there will always be something left behind unless you're using like an industrial crematory retort. Mm-hmm. And they they were slowly but surely realizing that the police were full of shit. And the fire department, honestly. (laughs) I mean, well. So at some point, a telephone repairman came by and told them that their lines had had been cut rather than like burned during the fire. Oh, I forgot to say that they tried to use their phone and it didn't work. Of course. Yes. So that's also very suspicious why it like... Why were their lines cut? Like, it would make sense if they burned in the fire, but uh, I don't know. Speaking of electricity, (laughs) so if the official report is that there's faulty wiring that causes the fire, Mm -hmm. but everybody remembers that when they were rushing out of the house in, like, the confusion, somebody turned on the lights so that they could see better. And as they were running Ah. out, the lights were still on. So how are the lights working if there's faulty wiring? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's not adding up. There was one witness who said he saw a man at the house taking, quote, a block and tackle used for removing car engines. So maybe that's why the cars didn't start. There are a lot of witnesses in this story and like not all of their stories can be true. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, we've heard a lot of times in different like true crime stories, people just making shit up to to get attention or to be like part of the story. Well, there's that. And then there's also people who are earnestly trying to be a good witness. But the human memory is not particularly reliable. Like you just unfortunately, it's the goddamn truth. Another time when they're at the site, the littlest child, solder child, her name's Sylvia, she finds some weird rubber object in the yard. And George decides that it is a napalm pineapple bomb. What? I don't know how he knows this or why he thinks this. We don't have a picture. We don't have evidence, obviously. But that could be what Jenny heard hitting the house and then rolling down. 
There were also reports of like fire being thrown at the solder house. And I just wrote, excuse me, what? Yeah. What? So the Sodders are pretty clear at this point that their five missing children didn't die in the fire. They're pretty sure that they have been kidnapped or left the house for some unknown reason. At this point, we get some reports of sightings of the children. One woman claims to see have seen them in a passing car while the fire was like happening. Another woman who runs like a little diner or something, tourist spot, says that she served the children breakfast and that there was a car with Florida license plates that was like driving them around. Another woman at a hotel in Charleston saw, like, she said that there were either four or five children at her hotel recently, and they were accompanied by two women and two men, and everybody was Italian. They stayed in a large room with a bunch of beds, and when she tried to, this, like, receptionist or whatever, tried to talk to the children, the adults were really hostile and wouldn't let her talk to the kids and, like, ushered them away and then they left the next morning. Very weird. It's really sad. A lot of these reports ended up, you know, not really being taken seriously by police. And for one reason or another, George decided he would just follow up on like every lead that came in. So again, this dad was like determined to find out what happened to his kids. And it's just really, really heartbreaking. So... (laughs) Trigger warning for really sad dad stuff. I mean, he's he's their dad. He's not going to give up. So at this point, we're, we're about four years after the fire. We're in 1949. And the Sodders are like, fuck this. <laughs> we need a new search. And we need to bring in a pathologist. And his name is Oscar B. Hunter. Oh. And at this point, they excavate, you know, the site of the house, which the basement was the only thing that was left before they put a bunch of dirt over it and a garden. Mm -hmm. Guess what? (laughs) They do find something and it's very, very weird. But based on like the name of this podcast, I bet you can guess what they found. Did they find our favorite calcium rich substance? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yep. So... They find just like some random things, coins, you know, like evidence of a house. But then they also find a bunch of vertebrae. Oh, God. And the report from the Smithsonian Institute says, quote, the human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. And like I I cut some boring stuff out. The bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14 year old boy, the oldest missing solder child. Okay, interesting. So if you couldn't follow that, (laughs) the vertebrae is like fused in such a way that scientists think that the person whose bones it was is older than the oldest missing solder child. So I guess it's not one of the children at all. Doesn't make any sense that it would be. Also, the vertebrae didn't look like it had been exposed to fire. Well, that gives me a couple of questions about the solders, but not answers (laughs) about where their children are. (laughs) So what the report decides is the likeliest scenario is that the dirt that George covered the site with had just some vertebrae in it. Maybe they got it from a fucking graveyard or some shit. I, honestly, I don't. I don't know. 
It's really weird. So it's 1949-ish, and officially the case is closed. There's there's just there's nobody's going to take it seriously in law enforcement. But George and Jenny, super parents that they are, they put up a billboard along Route 16, and they pass out flyers and they offer a reward. And I'm going to post a picture of either a portion of the billboard or all of the billboard because it's just really sad. They just there were just pictures of the five missing children and just some yeah, it's really scary. Uh, or not scary. It's just, it's really heartbreaking. They also put it really low to the ground so that if you like got out of your car and walked up to it, you'd be like eye level with the pictures. More tips come in. Gist of it is over the years, George went and followed up all kinds of leads all over the country. But the most like interesting thing that happened was in 1968, Jenny went out to get the mail and found a letter that was only addressed to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but didn't have a return address. And there was a photo of a man in his mid-20s in this envelope. And on the back, the note, or on the back, it said, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, LLIL boys, A- Nine zero one three two or thirty five. That is inscrutable. Yeah, unclear. Also, who's brother Frankie? There's no brother Frankie that anybody knows of. Do they know a priest called Brother Frankie? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so the parents are like, "Yeah, this guy does look like a grown-up version of their son, Lewis," but we're not really sure what to do about this. Let's hire a private investigator. They send him to Kentucky and they never hear from this guy again. Are you serious? Yeah. And they got so freaked out by the whole thing that they were like, I guess if we publish the letter or like publish this picture, they some harm might come to them. Like, I don't know. They were just freaked out by the whole thing. So they just put that picture up on the billboard. Oh, my God. That like picture of maybe their 20 year old son. I mean, but what can you do on the off chance that it is him? Yeah, exactly. It's it's like they had to do something, but they were in between a rock and a hard place because nobody official would help them. So in 1968, George dies and Jenny doesn't die. That's a weird way to say it. Jenny lives for another 20 years and she dies in 1989. And from the day after the fire to her death, she only ever wore black. Oh, that's chilling. Their legacy, George and Jenny Sauter, is that they never gave up on their kids. They fought tooth and nail to try and find them, but they died not knowing what happened to them. And the Sauter children and grandchildren do continue to investigate or, you know, like try and keep the case alive. They do have some theories about what happened, but there's nothing concrete. There never will be. You know, maybe there will be someday, but there hasn't been up to this point. And this happened over 60 years ago. The youngest solder child, Sylvia, she is probably still alive today. And she does not believe that her siblings died in the fire. Well, you know, if we're going purely on evidence, like, it's it's so hard to say what could have happened to these poor kids. It's baffling. Like... And I cut, I did 
cut out some things for time, but like, it's crazy that there's just no trace of them, that the fire chief was just like, oh yeah, the bodies are all gone. After delay, somehow not getting there for like seven hours and then being like, oh no, they, they burned for so, you know, they're just gone. I, I just, I don't believe anything that the fire department says in this, in this story. Usually I trust firemen. This time I do not. I think that it is suspicious. And I think that also it being old timey times. I mean, but 1945 is not, I wouldn't call that full on old timey yeah. times. World War like II had just an, ended. Yeah. Hooray. But I think, I don't know. They're, the fire chief smells fishy to me. The insurance guy smells fishy to me. I don't know oh, what happened to these kids. Yeah, the insurance guy, he, even weirder, he ended up serving on the jury that, like, the coroners have a, had a, assembled a jury to, like, decide the cause of death, and he was on that jury. That seems like conflict of interest to me. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's so weird. It, it like, and it's old enough where you're like, how is this going to get solved? Everybody that was involved, except for like the youngest, Sylvia, is dead. And it's just, it's really scary. And it's like, how is it possible that five children could just disappear off the face of the earth? Given what I've learned about this, I really think that they could have been kidnapped when they went outside to do their chores or when you know, after the parents went to bed, but before the kids went to bed, you know, because Jenny came downstairs and all the lights were on and that was pretty weird. And she didn't check to see if they were in their bed. She just assumed. I agree with you. I think that the kids were not in the house when the fire like happened at all. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think they were out of there. I don't think that their remains were in the fire. I but I do think that there's a chance that I don't know. I would love to think that they live the rest of their lives like out in the world. But we know that a lot of times with kidnapping, it doesn't really end that way. Yeah, but it's like, why kidnap five children? Why those five? Like, it, it, it's, it was, uh, it's such a frustrating story. Ugh. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Do you like it? Do you want to take a break? An ad break? <laughs> well, what about a cookie break? <laughs> yeah, take a cookie break and listen to an ad. Hey, this is Darren wanting to wish you all a merry Bonemas. I know I'll be sitting around with my family singing all of our favorite Bonemas carols this year. You know the songs. I'll be bone for Bonemas, Silver Bones, Rudolph the Dead Boned Reindeer, Sleigh Bells, but Sleigh as in murder. Merry Bonemas, everyone. Hey, Dad, it's me, Grace. Bony Christmas, and I love you very much, Miss Eye Blast Eyeballs for a living. Okay, bone voyage. Located on the edges of your radio static, you've stumbled upon the lost signal. Your podcast destination for tales of horror and the macabre, brought to life with voice acting and sound effects. New episodes are released 
every two weeks on Monday on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Join us, won't you? Hey Boneheads, this is Sam, here to wish you a Merry Bonemas and a Bony New Year. Thank you so much for listening and supporting my two very good friends on their skeletal adventures, and may you all sparkle and shine like the crystal bejeweled eye sockets of your favorite old world saint. Bone Voyage! Ho ho ho! Merry Christmas! It's me! Santa Claus! Mm, just kidding. It's Kayla Teal wishing you a very Merry Christmas. Well, I'm putting my cookies and milk down to start my bony tail. Please, let her rip. So, I started my topic with, of course, like all good topics do, a simple Google search of some faded words. I wanted to do a little bit of research on our favorite saint, the saint of this time of year, St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus. Mr. Kris Kringle. Mr. Kris Kringle, but specifically his bones. <laughs> Hell yeah. So my sources for this were an article from Mental Floss, an article from SaintNicholasCenter.org, <laughs> an article from Life Science, and then two from Atlas Obscura. So, a little bit of background on our holly jolly friend. St. Nicholas was born into a wealthy family around the year 270 in Mira, which is an ancient city that would today be in the southwestern coast of Turkey. At the time, it was under Byzantine control, but Nicholas's family was Greek. Nicholas, as a young man, chose to be a Christian and faced a lot of persecution for that because that wasn't like the dominant faith where he was from. And when he was young, his parents actually died of malaria. Oh, shit. Yeah. But they ended up leaving him a very sizable inheritance. And instead of keeping it for himself, Nicholas decided that he was going to give it to people in need. Jesus, that is generous. That is like too generous. I mean, that kind of becomes the tune of his life. Sure, sure. He He's a saint. Uh, so he is traveling around and he ends up encountering, this is one of the stories of his kindness, because there are a few fun ones. He's traveling around and he meets this father who has three daughters and he, the father can't afford the dowry for all three of his daughters. So he decides the father, the only logical thing to do would to be sell these daughters into forced sex work. Oh, bravo, dude. Great job. You found the solution. But Nicholas would not stand for this. He didn't like this. And so he ended up tossing some gold coins into the father's window at night to pay for the dowry of these women so that they wouldn't have to do sex work that they didn't want to do. But Nicholas's condition was that he was like, don't tell anyone that I got up to this. 
obviously they did because i'm telling you (laughs) (laughs) yeah they couldn't keep that secret i mean but nicholas did a bunch of kind of buck wild stuff he also was known he brought back to life three boys who had been dismembered and put into a pickling barrel no and he brought them back to life yeah he did okay i don't believe you but okay excuse you Santa Claus is a necromancer, and you can't fight me on this. (laughs) Well, if it fits with the story you want to tell, I I guess it's fine. (laughs) So, unfortunately, as all figures on our podcast often do, he died on December 6, 343. And he became recognized as a saint for all the cool shit that he did over his life, mostly being very generous and helping people and resurrecting dismembered boys. His remains were then entombed in what became known as the Church of St. Nicholas in Mira, and that's where his bones ended up staying for about 500 years. Now, let's pause for a second and talk about relics. Just a quick refresher on Catholic relics. It's derived from the word remains in Latin, and they're an extremely important part of Catholicism because they are the venerated body parts or associated items with saints. And we've talked about different various preserved body parts throughout the world that are relics. We definitely have. Just some fun facts. There are actually three types of relics. There are third class relics, which are items that have been touched by other relics. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Second class relics are items that were owned by the saint or like valued or worn by them. And then first class is uh-huh. the real fucking deal. Give it flesh to me. and bone. Yep. Hell yeah. <laughs> That's what we're after. So like I said, these relics are extremely important to the Catholic faith. And throughout time, wealthier people have been able to travel to see them in the places where they are enshrined. But, you know, the common folk had to wait for relics to actually be passed around to various different cities. So that's why we see relics kind of all over the world to be distributed, you know, by to the faithful. Yeah, right on. I'd love a finger. Wouldn't we all scratch that? I wouldn't want that. No, 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 no. (laughs) So over the centuries, St. Nicholas's tomb definitely became a very popular place for religious pilgrimage, especially due to the fact that his bones leach a sweet-smelling water-like substance that is called manna. Absolutely. Absolutely. What? His bones leach a fluid. Ugh. I mean, don't... uh, No, I don't want to know any more about it. (laughs) Well, you're gonna hear it. So, this manna is described by early reports as kind of oily, but later it's revealed that it's it's just water. It's just water, okay? It's just condensation. Don't get too grossed out. Why do people think it smells weird? Because it came out of bones, Caitlin. That's why it smells weird. But they said it smelled sweet. Like, that's fucked up. I don't know. They came from holy bones. If you're super faithful and you really love this guy, you would lick his bones. Oh, God. I do not think you are allowed to do that. I hope not. Anyway, this manna is kind of a cure-all, sold as a cure-all, and they would basically collect this manna and mix it with holy water and, like, sell it 
to people in little glass vials. And they still do that today. Fun fact. So in 1087, the tomb of St. Nicholas was actually raided by Italian sailors. Oh, boy. You know, you know what they're like. And they grabbed all of St. Nicholas's, they grabbed most of St. Nicholas's bones and tossed them onto a ship to Bari, Italy. And there are two kind of reasons that they might have done this. One was to kind of save the saint's tomb from destruction because there was a invading army of Turks coming kind of straight for this tomb. And so maybe they thought, we're going to grab it. The other reason might be that it would be a big magnet for religious pilgrims. So for tourism. So then they take these bones back to the Basilica of St. Nicholas in Bari. And in Bari, they actually have a festival every year to celebrate this fun theft. <laughs> oh. <laughs> They're like, wasn't it silly when these they when the thieves stole our bones? I mean, they love it. So 12 years after the initial bone theft, Christian crusaders go back and they gather a remaining 500 or so fragments of bone that were left behind and they take those to Venice, Italy. So the bones of St. Nicholas have been hanging out in Bari for about 900 years, and they're only examined once. And that is in 1953. The tomb was opened for, they need to do some renovations. So they decided to take the opportunity to measure the bones and x-ray them and like diagram what they looked like. And the bones were in delicate condition. There were definitely some missing, but they were able to form what they think St. Nicholas would look like. Based on the measurements of the bones, St. Nicholas would have been a very thin, short man with big eyes and, quote, an unusually large head. <laughs> and I love this as well, that he has a broken nose, which is apparently because he had quite a temper and would love to punch heretics. What? <laughs> Santa Claus is out here punching heretics. But he's also a saint. <laughs> yeah. He's a very generous guy, but he will pop you one if you talk bad about Christianity. So the fun thing about Santa's bones is that they aren't just in Bari and Venice. It's possible that they could also be at the original St. Nicholas Church. Because we don't have, it's hard to do a DNA test. There's never been a DNA test done on these bones that are in Bari and in Venice. So they were doing a recent excavation on the St. Nicholas Church in Turkey, and they found some hidden chambers. Oh, of course they did. So there's speculation not confirmation, but there's speculation that the bones that the Italian sailors stole were not actually St. Nicholas's bones at all, and that he might be buried down in these uh, secret chambers. Well, that'd be fucking tight. It would be tight, but it's not very likely. We won't really get confirmation on this until they are able to find a place in the St. Nicholas church that does not have these extremely like rare antique tiles that if they do like excavation around will definitely break them so good luck to them on that <laughs> yeah more power to you 
So because of this type of speculation and because we don't have some really hard evidence like DNA evidence or anything like that, there can be a lot of speculation about relics and, you know, their validity, especially when you don't really know where you got them. And this is kind of interesting because there have been a lot of sales of relics online, like illegal selling of, you know, human remains online. And that's where actually Father O'Neill came into possession of what he believes to be a fragment of St. Nicholas's pubic bone. That's a that's great. That's good. Nice one, sir. He told Atlas Obscura that he got it along with a bunch of other relics from a Belgian entrepreneur. Okay. The collector did not tell Father O'Neill where he got, he refused to tell Father O'Neill specifically where he got this bone and the other relics. But Father O'Neill believes that the bone was hidden during the French Revolution to protect it and was hidden in the convent of St. Clair. And they actually ended up saving a lot of relics, this particular convent. But now it is in possession of Father O'Neill, who lives in Illinois. (laughs) Great. He bought it on eBay. No. And along with that, he also got a piece of burial fabric that was supposedly from St. Colette of Cabri, also St. Francis Regis, and also a mandible from St. Christina, and two teeth belonging to another saint. O'Neill says that he doesn't remember the exact amount that he paid for this, but he said it was between $100 and $200. Oh, sir. I'm glad it wasn't more than that, because I think you were duped. We'll talk a little bit more about whether or not we think all of these are real. I'm not sure if all of these are real, but there might be a little bit of credence to the Santa Claus bone. But here's the thing. He bought a bunch of pieces of saints on eBay for between $100 and $200. That's really scary. That seems crazy to me. It doesn't seem like that should be happening on eBay if that is a like that that doesn't make sense. I mean, I I want to look into this more for a different topic like in the future, but I would love to know the laws around selling human remains on eBay. But I did just pop you off a picture of the Santa Claus bone because as you Oh. S- Yeah, as you'll see, the only real proof that Father O'Neill has that this is actually, you know, a relic of St. Nicholas is that the word St. Nicola is like taped onto the bone. Yeah, I think anybody could have done that at any point in time. And this guy would believe it. So no, still not convinced. I'm sorry, I'm not. All right. In November of 2016, he was contacted by Professor Tom Higham. He is of University of Oxford and Dr. George Kazan of University of Turkey. And they are leading experts in the field of both archaeology and Christian relics. So they are very interested in what Father O'Neill has. Okay, okay. I want to get some experts in there. I'm liking this. So what they want to do is they want to take a sample of this bone for radiocarbon dating. They want to know how old this bone be. And according to the results of the radiocarbon dating, the bone dates back to the 4th century. Shit. Which is around when 
Nicholas died. I might have to eat my words. I mean, I wouldn't go that far. You know, like we said, they cannot make a DNA comparison to the bones in Venice and Bari, but that's kind of the next step would be to take these bones and then compare them to, you know, what we think are the quote unquote verified bones of St. Nicholas. But what I kind of like about Santa's bones is that like Santa Claus, they kind of seem to be everywhere at once. Uh, There's also a piece in California. So St. Nicholas is spread all over and he's watching you from his moisture leaking bones. Thank you so much for that ooey gooey visual. I mean, I am I when I found out that Santa's bones leak a magical fluid, I pretty much lost it. I was like, this is it. This is what I have to do. I have (laughs) to tell everybody. Damn. Yeah, but For the purposes of imagination, these aren't really Santa's bones. Santa is fine. He has all his bones. Mm -hmm. He's not jiggling around your rooftop without any bones. He is skeletal, but he has flesh as well. What a lovely bone miss (laughs) it has been. Are you chilled and thrilled and ready to go drink some eggnog? (laughs) Ready to cut into that Christmas ham? (laughs) Are you ready to send things off with a poem? Yes! I believe we have time for a poem. I have prepared a little composition to wish you guys a merry bone miss, uh, and it will be performed by Caitlin and myself. This is called... The Night Before Bone Miss T'was the night before Bone Miss, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, because they were all dead. The witches were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas's bones soon would be there. The mummies were nestled all snug in their tombs, while visions of cats danced in the gloom. And Lizzie B. with her axe and Vlad with his stake had just settled in to watch the snowflakes when out in the cemetery arose with such a clatter I sprang from my Fisk iron casket to see what's the matter. Away to the window I flew like a vulture, crawled out of the bone hole and passed tools of torture. The moon gave glint off the forest fen treasure Lighting up the corpses with holiday pleasure. When what to my wondering eyes did appear, but a miniature sleigh and skeleton reindeer. With his leaky bones so lively and quick, I knew in a moment, it's the bones of St. Nick. Faster than the burning of Holmes murder castle, he shouted and called them by name with no hassle. Now benders, now Bateman, now Gunnis and Torso, on Somerton, on Kennewick, on Rasputin, and Poe. To the top of the crypt, avoid all of that bone. Now dash away, dash away through the old catacomb. Like Shara me, he starts to fly across the moon and into the sky. But I heard him exclaim ere he drove out of sight. Happy Bone Miss to all, and Bone Voyage for the night. 
my god, Soap, I'm so impressed. <laughs> Thank you. I I just wanted to give a little bone miss greeting to everyone with a bit of a wrap-up of some things that we've covered. Oh, that was so fun to read. And if you couldn't tell, listeners, I was reading it for the first time. <laughs> I did send it to you before the recording. <laughs> I know, but I was eating a wrap. <laughs> well, I guess that means we'll have to wrap things up. Oh, okay. Whatever you say. <laughs> Do we say Bone Voyage again, even though we already said it in the poem? I think we're allowed just one more Bone Voyage. Okay, it is Chris- it is boneless. It's Christmas. Let's let's do it. Okay, Merry Christmas, everybody, and celebrate however you want. Just have a good day. Bone voyage. Happy boneless. Merry boneless, or a bone voyage from Jordan Moeller. This is Bone Nana Boy number two, Scotty Landis, wishing you a very merry boneness. Bo ho hones, merry boneness. It's me, Jordan Eskenazi. I was the guest on episode 19, which I hear was the highest rated episode so far of, of, of anything bone. So um, I have to figure it has something to do with me. So, uh, but e- either way, I just wanted to wish you a, v- a very mer- happy bone, merry bone miss and a, and a happy bone year. And I can't wait to hear uh, more ghoulish tales of fright from the anything bones gals. Bone Voyage 2021. Thanks for listening to Anything Bones. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Anything Bones Podcast or email us at anythingbonespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Nick Kruger for our spooky music and Steven Vetteroff at Chubby Scrubby on Twitter for our jazzy vocals. And thank you to Camilla Franklin at Camilla Strader on Instagram for our beautiful bony artwork. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Oh, bones. Merry bone miss. All right, I love you.